With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 15 of Ness and Dorma, your sort of regular chat about 80s and 90s football. And I'm Lee Calvert, I'm hosting, and I'll be joined, I am joined this week, by the usual suspect that is Mr. Rob Smythe. Evening, Rob. Hello. And also to help us out this week, because we're going to be talking about Ireland, is Mr. Paul Doyle of The Guardian. Hi, Paul. Hi, lads. I'm glad to see you both managed to survive the beast in the East snowstorm, by the way. We don't have any... Snow at all in Orkney, it's great. Beast from we the have East. snow like 364 days a year, but not <laughs> far from today. Yeah. <laughs> the Beast from the East sounds like a nickname of a Russian fullback from the UEFA Cup <laughs> in the 80s, doesn't it? It or, does, actually. Or it tri- probably was. Or Triff on Ivanov's Triff Twitter handle. <laughs> um, you can get in touch with this podcast, the Ness and Dorma podcast, on Twitter at Ness and Dorma Pod. We've got a website, nessandormapod.com. There's an email, which is contact at Ness and Dorma Pod. We are on Acast, we are on iTunes. Please subscribe and you'll get us regularly delivered. Well, regularly, whenever we do an episode, but it's usually about fortnightly every time we get a new one out. This week, we're going to have a long, good long look at Jack Charlton's legendary period as Island Boss. That's why Paul's here to help us out. And also take a look at the Ballon d'Or list from 1989, which I think could definitely be, be described as curious. It's probably the best word to use, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. First of all, before we get started, speaking of contact, we've had an email from a listener. Pete Trainer, thanks for getting in touch. And he says, I love the pod, thank you very much. He said, I have a burning question for Rob Smythe. I don't know where <laughs> this is going. He said, um, who Rob once described Andres Iniesta as simply the most beautiful player in football history. He said, does he stand by that, first of all? And second of all, which players from the 80s and 90s would the rest of the guests nominate for that crown? Rob, first of all, do you stand by the Iniesta quote? I no no. I I think I disappeared up my own fundament that night. As, as you can tell by the use of the word simply that you know someone's been stroking their chin a bit too much. Um, 
Don't get. I think he's right up there, but I'm terrible for that. I get. I remember exactly when it was. It was when they won Euro 2012 and they beat Italy 4-0. I think in the final. I'm terrible at getting carried away in the moment. You know. Is this a curse of minute by minute reporting that basically? No, that wasn't even a minute by minute. Oh, was it? I've got no excuse. Yeah, that was a that was in theory a considered piece for the paper. It was basically Um, a nuclear take. I just yeah, I'm terrible for that. I get so carried away. But I quite yeah, no, there's no no, there's no defence. As for others, I would say the first one that came to mind in terms of kind of the same kind of elegance was probably Roberto Baggio. Um, But I think you made a good point. We're talking beforehand that actually it was almost hard to be a beautiful player in those days because. If you had more than two, because of the constant like... threat of violence you were under, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the constant, yeah, the constant threat to your shin bones. Um, so there were a lot of kind of obviously brilliant players, but beautiful doesn't necessarily spring to mind. With even someone like Maradona, you know, did yes. beautiful things, but it was still a kind of an he was a bit of a bruiser, an wasn't he? And yeah, it could be, yeah, and he needed to be, um, yeah. You mentioned about, uh, I mean, obviously Graham Sooners was around. You mentioned was it what was it Sooners said about Zico? Yeah, there's a nice quote. I mean, Zico kind of had no right to be a great player. He was five foot six, skinny, um, but he was just so intelligent. Like soon as said that he um, Zico was the one player he could never leave t- get a foot on. He just said he was too smart. He always saw me coming, and you can imagine a kind of cartoon clouds as soon as goes in the wrong direction again. <laughs> Zico's an interesting one because he is. I think we underrate him in this in Europe. In fact. Um, just like the scale of his genius, purely because he didn't win the World Cup. He's the best Brazilian to never win a World Cup, which is kind of in itself is quite a kind of compliment. Mm. Um, I would put him up there as well. And also Socrates. I, kind of, I don't know where the line between elegance and beauty is, but you kind of talk about elegance, think of Socrates as well, strutting around with his headbands on and stuff. Mentioning Zico made me remember the guy, uh, Dave, I can't remember his surname. He was you know, the club commentator for Bolton Wanderers. Was, <laughs> I know the one you and mean. And he was famous <laughs> saying ding, dang, do and all that. And, Tony, uh, chubby midfielder, scouse midfielder Tony Kelly, who played for Bolton in the early 90s, uh, scored a goal. He's quite a talented lad and scored a goal when he weaved through a bit and scored and, and he got, and it was brilliant. The Dave did the kind of thing, Tony Kelly, what a goal! Zico! He's like Zico! <laughs> Basically, but it was, uh, that was kind of the top of it. He's dead now, God rest his soul. Not Tony Kelly, the commentator. The, um, <laughs> And I don't know what Zico's doing now. He's probably a part. Is he? A, is he in Parliament? They all seem to end up in the Brazilian Parliament. All these players these days. I think he's too. Yeah, I think that's beneath him. <laughs> too, too, <laughs> too rich, too important. Too much of an athlete to do that. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think I said that properly. Right. So let's move forward. Then let's talk about um, Ireland first, shall we? Then, and we'll talk about the Blondor later. Paul's here to help us with this. Mainly we're going to be covering the period when Charlton took over to when he, he finished, but there'll be some other stuff that we kind of cover as well, I would imagine. Um, so I suppose the first question for me, Paul, for you to consider is, well, when did it, he took over in 86, didn't he, Charlton? Is that right? Mm, yeah. 85, 86. Owen Hand's last game was a Denmark game, wasn't it? Yeah. And they were plugged They were plugged 4-1 in a World Cup qualifier, I think November 85, and they were, they were absolutely slaughtered um, yeah. Paul will know more about the fallout but just that game it was Denmark were very good but yeah Ireland were a mess so leading they off of that were, they, were um, they in a total state Ireland at that time 
Yeah, they were, and the, and the, that, the stadium wasn't even full for that match. Um, partly because we, we were already uh, eliminated uh, ignominiously from the qualifiers, which which was quite a fall from grace because we'd gone close in the previous two World Cup campaigns, denied uh, principally by uh, uh, fiendish refereeing decisions <laughs> in '78 and and '82. '82, um, a Benone Hands first campaign. And they went really close in what has probably been the toughest European qualifying group ever. When Who they was had it with France, and... France, Holland, B- Belgium, and Cyprus. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, Ireland f- finished ahead of Belgium and level on points with France, who would of course go on to reach the semi-finals in '82, uh, and lost out in goal difference. That was after uh, suffering uh, terrible refereeing de- decisions in the matches, both away to. France had to wait to build. Hans, two right. subsequent campaigns, so the qualifiers for Euro 84 and the 86 World Cup, were the teams became quite dishevelled uh, and there was definite sort of disorganisation in, in, in the ranks. Or, uh, the, the team had lost their mojo in a bit of direction and um, and towards the end of the campaign in 86, they, they'd lost a lot of popular support as well, uh, and which is why there were there was such low attendances towards the end of the campaign. And in fact, there was one friendly at home to Mexico where, where there's only 5,000 there. Wow. Um, and um, So, is, yeah. I mean, in terms of expectation, did, did Ireland, you mentioned it went close in 78 and 82 and it all came apart a little bit. Did Ireland expect to qualify at that time, or was it always seen as a bonus? Did they think they should have been well, getting never there? Never had, obviously. So yeah. we, I wouldn't go so far as to say we expected, but but um, we knew we had some good players, and of course we saw Northern Ireland doing mm. really well, mm. both in '82 and '86, and, and and we seemed to be getting further away rather than closer. So so there was there was sort of disillusionment and and, and uh, bitterness there. <laughs> And also the FAI were, were, were severely strapped for cash. Um, so they, they took what was quite a bold decision. They decided that they, they wanted the, the next manager to be uh, England-based, not, ne- not necessarily English, but definitely England-based because um, now the, the sort of League of Ireland is becoming less um, relevant to international selection. Yeah, all, players yeah. were, all, our, all our players were based in England, so you needed someone uh, on the ground there, both to look at players and also to try and be um, to carry more influence with English clubs, because often it was a struggle to get them to release players. Um, um, so then, when uh, the, the the decision was finally made as to who would be um, Jack Charlton, no one really saw Jack Charlton coming, and even in the voting on the day, um, he he came last. The initial he was he up again. <laughs> Well, well, the initial um, the, uh, Alan Kelly was was the first name that they, I think they offered a job to. He was manager of Preston at the time, and had, um, but it would only have been on a part time basis, and Preston wouldn't let him combine the roles. Um, and he he was obviously he had been a good player for Ireland, and he had been instrumental in, for example, attracting players such as Mark Lawrenson to Ireland. Hmm. Um, and then they decided, I think, um, if they couldn't get an Irishman, they'd get the next best thing, which was a Celtic legend. Uh, so they went, they offered it to Billy McNeil, who at the time was manager of Man City. Same thing, they wouldn't let him uh, job share with Ireland. Um, so then so, somebody recommended Jack Charlton to, to the FAI, uh, so, uh, you know, said he, he, he could do a good job for them. Uh, but then just when the, when the voting came, 
Jack Tarleton was was uh, was in there with uh, John Giles, who obviously had managed Ireland previously, mm. and Lee Tui, who wasn't England based, but the, he was in there. He had done very well with the Irish youth teams, and had also managed Ireland previously. And um, they were saying if if they did decide to to go with a local based guy, he was probably the forerunner. Uh, and but then there was a late entry when somebody in the FAI. Uh, who had good connections at Liverpool basically got word that Bob Paisley would be interested in the job. Wow. So, so in the, uh, when it came to the voting, there was 18 people who had a vote and, uh, Paisley got nine votes and Charlton Giles and two, we got three each. Um, but yeah, you needed 10, of course, for the, for the majority. So, they, <laughs> so, so they had a runoff and basically someone changed their mind. And uh, Jack Charlton, Jack Charlton ended up uh, winning, winning the vote, which is one of the reasons why, when it was announced that Jack Charlton had had um, been appointed manager, it wasn't greeted with widespread enthusiasm. Uh, people thought that we'd sort of got someone who nobody really wanted, just as a result of internal FAI politics. Well, you can see why they would think that, can't you? To be yeah. fair, <laughs> yeah. given um, that's probably uh, exactly what happened. <laughs> quite, quite possibly. Although there were some suggestions that, um, that that somebody was concerned that Paisley uh, Paisley's health meant that it would have been unfair to ask him to have the job. Yeah, I suppose at that stage it would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, he got he got the job, and um, the his his introductory press conference was a, was a classic of the genre. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think he won some people over just because uh, of his 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 directness and his awkwardness. And he, I mean, he ended it by challenging Eamon Dunphy to a fight. Just <laughs> 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 uh, Eamon Dunphy, at one, as, he was a journalist at the time, and, and he was there, and he, he wanted to ask a question about the vote and how did how did we go from a situation where, where Bob Paisley had so many to 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 Charlton being appointed. And Jack Charlton goes, I know you, you're trouble, let's take it outside. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yet another way in which Charlton was ahead of his time with Eamon Dunphy in many ways, yeah. Yeah, well, it kind of set the tone for that era because one, one of the, the sort of, that, the whole Charlton era was set to a soundtrack of uh, pundits, particularly Dunphy, complaining about <laughs> 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 what he was doing. Um, and I think the fact that, that, uh, that Charlton so clearly didn't give a toss what anyone thought about him, kind of endeared him to some people, and was quite a um, contrast with with his predecessor on hand. The, the criticism of him, including from senior players, was that he was a bit too weak, a bit too in awe of some of the players like Brady Stapleton, uh, Mark Lawrenson, but also paid far too much attention to what the press said about him. That, of course, culminated in, in a famous episode in Ireland where um, one journalist criticised Hand for selecting Mick McCarthy uh, and, and made a comment to the effect that I, I can run quicker than him. So <coughs> Hand got the journalist into an organised race between <laughs> the journalist and McCarthy. Uh, and McCarthy won the race. I was going to say you won, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but it was still, it didn't help hand standing among the players. The players were all going, what, what are you doing? And, you know, why do you care so much about what the journalists think? And, and does that mean, like, if, if the journalists had won the race, would you have dropped McCarthy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do want to, no, yeah, no good comes of this, does it? Yeah. Although, interestingly, hand, um, hand was, hand recruited McCarthy and said at the time that one of the reasons was because, um, 
of an absence of leadership within the team. Uh, they, they were all too respectful of each other. No one would you know, tell David O'Leary off or tell Ian Brady off. Whereas he brought in Mick McCarthy, who wasn't as good a centre-back te- technically as, as the guys we had already, but would provide leadership and didn't care would, 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 would bollock anyone. Uh, so, you know, a bit like Jack. So, um, so uh, where were we? What was the, where, yeah. what was so the we're point? To, to yeah, we just said it. So Charlton took over from Owen Hand, as you were saying. There was a very different style of leadership. Straight away, he set, he's, he's put his marker down in the first press conference. Did he yeah. make changes immediately to the squad, to the playing? Did he, did he, or did he have more of a evolutionary <laughs> well, the, approach? Or well, his first match was a friendly against Wales, uh, which we lost one nil. Where where his he started to put his identity on the team was in um, a friendly tournament in Iceland. Uh, which he had actually taken advice from Jock Steen at the time, who had always told him the first thing to do when, when um, managing a team is take them on an away trip because that's when you find out what people are like and mm. who you can trust and who you can't trust and all that sort of thing. So we went on this triangular tournament in Iceland uh, against Iceland and Czechoslovakia, and Ireland won it. Uh, they beat both teams. It was the first time we'd ever won anything, um, so that so that was a positive. Um, he also gave. Um, I think in the Wales match actually was when he gave uh, debuts to John Aldridge and Ray Houghton, who would of course become very significant throughout his campaign. Did they? Did they uh, have a, a sort of like clever system of people who like looked around for people with Irish roots? And did, was because obviously a lot of he was criticised unfairly for bringing in people with Irish heritage, wasn't he? Did he just go around asking? Did the FI, FI, yeah, FI, well, says, FAI have a well, have a plan well, the, or something? Well, they had a plan. That had been introduced. Um, John Giles was the first to do that in the mid seventies, right? Uh, because it, basically, because he had lots of connections in England, so he knew uh, more people. Whereas the guys who had been League of Ireland associated before that didn't uh, know as many people in England. So he brought in a lot of people. Then Own Hand um, did it uh, as, as well. Uh, as I said, Lawrenson, uh, mm. Cascarino was on hand, he recruited him, uh, Chris Hewton, Tony Galvin, guys like that. Um, and, and on hand, actually, I think, um, tipped Jack off to Aldridge and uh, and uh, Houghton as well. But uh, obviously, they never got to play from before he, he, he was sacked. Um, or not sacked, but everyone, everyone, cause did, it, did it become <laughs> more prevalent under Charlton? Or are you saying it just continued? Yes, no, it was just it, a- it, it, well, I think in the 82 campaign, I think a third of the players we used then were born uh, outside Ireland. Right. Um, but I think that proportion increased under Charlton, for sure, you know. Did people Which in I, Ireland care? Some. Some did. Uh, and they were referred to as the Anglos. That's what that was the term. Right. That, <laughs> that was the, that's that, quite an insulting but, term in Ireland as well, that, isn't it? That's... Uh, no, it was it was kind of specific to is what what it was what they were called at the time players who were born in England right. and came to Ireland. But some some people uh, had a beef with it, but most I don't think did simply because we're an immigrant nation and there isn't a family in Ireland that doesn't have uh, a member at least one member living abroad, and and they know that if they're living abroad they might have children abroad. So so you know that that is part of Irishness as far as most people are there's concerned. There's a great there's a great quote from. Um... Charlton, where he says, what did he say? Every player we brought into the squad considered himself Irish. Had it not been for the economic circumstances which forced their parents or grandparents to emigrate, they would have been born and bred and reared here. Should they now be victimised and denied their heritage because of the whims of a journalist? 
I think yeah, not. Well, and yeah. by the way, if you if you want to go outside, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were some who uh, who maybe sort of exploited a bit. There's, the, <clears throat> there's a funny bit in uh, Paul Rowan did a book in in the mid '90s called "The Team That Jack Built." There's a funny bit where he, he discusses the case of Michael Robinson, who all oh, right, the yeah, the Liverpool striker. Yeah, and he he there's an old Q and A he did with Shoot Magazine, uh, where he's um, you know favorite food, favorite music, all that sort of stuff, and he go and it was um, biggest dream, and it was to catch the eye of Ron Greenwood and win an England cup. <laughs> but then a couple of years later, uh, when <clears throat> he was hoping to catch the eye of Ireland, he did another Q and A with Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> favorite music, the Dubliners, uh, the Wolfhounds. He was nothing uh, if not media savvy, Michael Robinson, wasn't he? As his, as his as his future career and current career demonstrated, really. Yeah. So yeah, um, so he brought in the so there was more English based yeah. players, but he said you know they wanted an English based manager for that reason, I suppose, didn't they? Well, that was one of the reasons, and the, as I said, the other one was just to have an influence with the with the. Mm. Um, English clubs and what, who better than an England World Cup winner than than who might have a higher standing with English clubs? Um, <laughs> there's a funny thing Ray Houghton once said about the first time he met um, Jack Charlton, or the first sort of team talk you had with him, and and he was with him, it was himself and Aldridge were together, and they were both quite excited because they knew Jack only as a World Cup winner, and they were saying to each other before he began, a, "Wow, he's going to have some." brilliant tactical insights to give us. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing he said was, now remember, lads, if the ball's up in the air, the opponents can't get it. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, was, it was that his style of play straight away? Did he kind of piss everybody off? Well, certainly the, more the journalist side of things off with the style of play, or did that kind of more direct style of play evolve? Or? No, it was from the Iceland tournament onwards. It was... It was uh, it was very stark uh, <laughs> and clear how he wanted to play, and he and he said he he said that. I mean, he had been to the World Cup in '86 uh, as a TV pundit, and he came back saying every team plays exactly the same way, and the way to beat them is to just go direct over the top, a lot of hassling and harrying, and that's the the blueprint he intended right from the start to to apply to Ireland. Uh, this, the, the the one sort of irony there was the the one team that he was impressed with in '86 were Belgium because they mixed it up they could go direct to Jan Koolemans uh, mm. occasionally and they had runners from midfield which was a big thing that Jack liked um, so he had a bit of admiration for them um, and they were of course who we met in his first competitive match. Um, what did Liam Brady make of it? Liam Brady. It, it, that was the big question right from the start. How would how would he cope? And uh, you know, Jack, Jack was made, has made you know references to uh, while, while I was giving my team talk, I could, Liam was would be in the hotel corner and uh, reading Corriere della de Sport and, this, and, 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 and looking very sniffy. And other players were going up to him saying, "Liam, Liam, you know what's this guy talking about?" And <laughs> So he had to win the players over, uh, and um, he only did that eventually through through winning matches. And and he, he his big thing that he said to Brady was he, he categorically banned him from receiving the ball from the centre backs. <laughs> <laughs> there's, 
<laughs> Otherwise, we'll be stepping outside and dealing with it, no doubt. Yeah, well, and he told the centre backs he'd be dropped if you passed to Brady. You know, actually, can I just that reminds me of a story about John Beck, you know, the old Cambridge manager, when um, early in a game after about two minutes, ball was knocked up to Steve Claridge, and he said he he did it, took it down really nicely, knocked it in, knocked it square or something, and then kind of jogged off really proudly himself. A second later, the subs bench goes up. He was hooked after two or three minutes because he'd been told you never do that. Basically, you run the channels. That's it. And they had a big brawl at half time. It's like the, it's like it's like the anti Clough, isn't it? Because imagine being pulled after pulled off for about five minutes for playing a square pass. And Clough used to Clough used to substitute people who didn't roll the ball along the floor. Yeah, didn't yeah. He? So it was a... anyway. Sorry, but didn't he didn't chant sub Brady after half an hour in one game? Yes, that was in the qualifiers. Um, no, sorry, it was a friendly. It was towards the end of uh, the. It was in preparation for the 1990 World Cup. Brady had missed the uh, Euro 88 through a combination of injury and suspension. Uh, the the irony, of, one of the ironies of Charlton's reign being that the only player sent off in a competitive match under him was Liam Brady. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and, and uh, it was it was in a match against Bulgaria actually, and, and he was being man marked, and this Bulgarian was just kicking his ankles all throughout the game, and eventually Brady just snapped and turned around and, and gave uh, kicked him back or something. But as he's walking off, he he gives a very obvious up yours gesture to the Bulgarian bench, <laughs> and the RTE commentator says, "Ah yes, Liam clearly indicating there that he was punched." <laughs> Brilliant. So we'll, we'll come on to it. We'll come on to Italian nineteen in a minute. You've just mentioned you've just mentioned Euro eighty eight, first tournament that Ireland qualified for, um, yes. and it was very touch and go towards the end, wasn't it? Was it a Scottish goal that effectively Gary meant you, Gary McCarney meant, 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 yeah, meant you qualified? Yeah, um, yeah. and um, I mean, if he hadn't scored that, there's there, there's a good chance Charlton would have been sacked because his football wasn't a delight to watch and, and it was acceptable if you were winning. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. But, but, but if... Uh, Can I just ask you quickly? So, so basically, Ireland finished their campaign, hadn't they? And yeah. they needed Scotland to win in Bulgaria and Mackay scored with, what, three minutes to go or something? Yeah, and it was interesting because Scotland had already done us a, a favour in the previous match by beating Belgium 2-0. Um, so how would then, you have followed that game? Because obviously now it would be on everywhere, you know. How would you have followed uh, it? Or screened it. They weren't involved. They weren't screened it live, and um, and I remember there was for some reason, and there was lots of conspiracy theories about this in Ireland. Uh, Rangers wouldn't let any of their players play for Scotland, <laughs> 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 which, <laughs> which, which which is which is why Gary Mackay uh, ended up playing. He was from Hearts. It was his Hearts debut was as well, wasn't it? Was it? It was, it was his debut. Yeah. What? And it's um, extraordinary. Yeah, and um, so he scores. He, you qualify. Yeah, um, fantastic. So we, we qualify and um, then we get drawn, uh, obviously, against England. And in every, there was a, there was a party which couldn't say, oh, my God, we wait all this time to qualify and it's just to get humiliated by England on the world stage. Because, <laughs> because England, of course, had qualified, I think, they with, with the best record right across. That was the beginning of the of the English tradition, really, of, of swashbuckling. <laughs> into the finals and then flopping miserably. So, yeah, of course, as an English person, I very much remember that game and everyone remembers the, let's get Steve McMahon on, he'll tighten things up, won't he? Oh, no, he won't. He'll give the fucking ball away, won't he? 
that was that was nineteen. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. I'm oh, yeah. never tall a bit mixed up. My apologies. But yeah. but there were plenty of English cock ups in '88 as well. Was it was who was it? Shanked strapping him. Was it Samson? It was Kenny Samson. Actually, something Kenny Samson. There was an, I only saw this um, not so long ago. Um, because obviously I watched it on RTE at the time, but I saw, I watched I saw the ITV coverage recently, and they had Jim Rosenthal on the team bus with, with England on yeah, the way to the ground, which you you wouldn't have nowadays. And uh, I'd always thought, well, maybe England were a bit nervous going into the game, you know, um, but they weren't. And Chris Chris Waddle was there, cracking jokes, or t- oh, actually he was telling funny stories about Jack when Jack Charlton was manager of Newcastle. And he'd bugger off training to go fishing, but uh, <laughs> but Kenny Sampson did an entire interview, um, in different personalities. <laughs> he he, did, he did answered the first question as Frank Spencer. He answered answered another one as Ronald Reagan. This <laughs> 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 is the game. You can just, find that on YouTube. Actually, it's really yeah. I know, but anyway, the the joke was on Samson, unfortunately, in the end, <laughs> because he he ballooned that attempted clearance right up into the air. And Ray Houghton um, scored, um, which was obviously magnificent. <laughs> was it a big? Did, was it, did a lot of people travel to eighty-eight from Ireland? Was it a big? Yeah, yeah. Adventure? yeah. There was a mass exodus of people. It was the first, uh, you know, it was the first time where the Irish people travelled on mass, um, <laughs> not, not looking for jobs. <laughs> <laughs> So, in terms of that team that played in '88, was that was that the beginning of the the kind of settled team that went through to '90? Yeah, there were, yeah, there were a lot of mainstays there. Um, yeah, M- McGrath, Whelan, Aldridge, um, Packy Bonner in goals. It was Packy Bonner, obviously against England. That that was probably his best match for Ireland, although. I'm not sure any of the saves were particularly good, but he made a lot of saves. It was mm. more a case of uh, bad finishing by England, but he was in the right place. And, you know, in fairness to me, <clears throat> because every other campaign, unfortunately, basically foundered on, on Bonner's goalkeeping. <laughs> but but, uh, but that, that was his day. Are you sure it's pronounced Bonner? <laughs> <laughs> I, I should explain what that means. Paul, you should explain what that means. I'm not completely Well, I've only been told this. I haven't seen this. Do you remember the ITV commentary? I remember vaguely, but not really. The thing that stands out, it's probably only because I've seen it on YouTube, is um, Clough was in the studio beforehand, and they said, he said, is the Irish set at half fit? And it says, Mick McCarthy, yeah, he's playing. Clough is good. Yeah. <laughs> he just basically and slagged him off for about two minutes about how rubbish he was. But I don't remember the commentary, no. Yeah, well, apparently, uh, uh, Brian, I was told Brian Moore, um, the first time Bonner got the ball, he, he said, um, uh, he pronounced his name Boner, saying that some lads he'd met from Donegal <laughs> in the hotel the night before had assured him that that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> oh, God bless Brian Moore, because he'd done that. He'd done, you can just, you can hear, I haven't, I haven't actually heard it, but you can just hear his spectacularly earnest delivery yeah. saying that, can't you? As honest as the day is long. <laughs> so you can just you're... picture the look on this lad's face. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So you're at 98 comes and goes, and then you get into the qualification for the 1990 World Cup. Of course, not in Northern Ireland were in your qualifying group. What was that like? In, no, uh, 1990? Yeah. 
Hold on, was that not ninety four? It was then as well, but I think they read it for ninety. It's more, it's more, it's more a general question around what was it like as a Republic person to have Northern Ireland have to play against them? Is it, is it difficult? Is it strange? Is it? Um. Well, the atmosphere in the matches in in nineteen ninety four at Windsor Park, for example, was a well, well. I mean, Republic fans were just told not to go. Uh, to stay to stay well away, and there had been uh, some atrocities around the time of the build-up, so the tension was was high. And uh, I mean, all the players who played in it uh, have said that was the worst atmosphere they've ever played in. It was just pure hate. Okay. And and I think that was the match where, where Billy Bingham and Jack Charlton never got along particularly well. And that, <laughs> and that 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 was the match. I think it was that one where. Um, uh, Bingham, or apparently, or no, one of one of the Northern Irish dugout apparently said to Morris Setters during the match, just as at one point as he was walking up behind a touchline, just shouted, apparently, up yours at, at Morris Setters. And I, so I, I think it was at the end of the match then, there, and there's a camera that just caught this bit of Charlton just going up to Billy Bingham and saying, up yours too. <laughs> <laughs> He did seem it's for funny charm because he did seem to be this sort of charming and genial guy, but just also somehow constantly f- about one second away from fuming at all yeah, the times. There's a good story from that Ireland game actually. When so they they may, may have needed a win, may have needed a draw in the Northern Ireland game. It turned out a draw would have put them through, and they were one 0 down fairly late on. And Charlton immediately turns around and says to Tony Cascarino, "You're coming on." Cascarino said he unzipped his tracksuit top and he realised he'd left his shirt in the dressing room. So that the only time in his career. And he explained it to Charlton. Apparently Charlton just went, fuck. And almost at the precise moment he did, Alan McLaughlin scored this really good goal to equalise so they didn't need him on. And Cascarino said, I honestly think if McLaughlin not scored there, Jack the chin be on the touchline. <laughs> so nineteen ninety World Cup, that's the... In my memory, because I'm going from my memory, that seems to be the time when everybody seemed to remember... Ireland becoming this thing on the even though they qualified in eighty eight, it was the nineteen ninety World Cup where Ireland became everyone's darlings, which must have been weird because well, how, how how could you not love a team that that reached the quarterfinals, winning no matches and scoring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it that way before, but yeah, it's, <laughs> two goals. Come on, <laughs> oh yes, two goals. Sorry, and of course, um, and, and what beauties they were. Um, <laughs> Particularly Quinn's. Um, <laughs> so remind people what the Nile Quinn goal was then. It was against Holland, um, against the, the, the last game, and it was a huge kick from Bonner, from Bonner, straight down, lands on the, comes out the sky on the edge of the Dutch penalty area. One of the defenders, I think it's Van Arla, kind of muffs a volley back towards Van Brooklyn. So it still hasn't touched the ground. Van Brooklyn dives to his left, fumbles it, spills out, Quinn slides in, and sort of knocks it towards goal, and it hits Van Brook from the chest and flies into the net. Whether it was going in anywhere, I don't know, but it's it's one of the great... <laughs> Liquid football, yeah. Yeah, and in, 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 the, in, a, in a World Cup in Italy, just just one. And and also, there's a lovely contrast, because early in the game, Hullet had scored this lovely clean goal after a 1-2, like yeah, really slick, yeah. And, and yeah, just a perfect contrast. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit, if, if you pause... Um, Bonner's face just as he's kicking, taking a few <laughs> mighty punt downfield, which was his speciality. Um, and he always did this grimace 
just as before he was kicking, as if he was about to tackle a really hard maths problem, and he just hooped it downfield. But the grimace is exactly, it's almost like the, uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. It's like that. <laughs> and he do, do it every time. <laughs> and of course, in, in 1990, it, it, it was uh, the beginning of his downfall, really, because um, it was both his greatest hour, Hockey Bonner, I'm talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. His, his finest hour, um, because in, he made that save in the penalty shootout against Romania in the quarterfinal, but also in that unforgettable match against Egypt. <laughs> yeah. which, One for which, the ages that was, wasn't it? The England game against Egypt was the same. Absolutely awful. Yeah, but... yeah there were no goals and no action whatsoever. And but, but Bonner apparently had the ball. It was t- it was subsequently timed that he had the ball in his hands for um, six minutes. That, <laughs> that much, and, and that was apparently the straw that that, that put Keith into saying we have to do something about this. And they eventually introduced the back pass rule. In, uh, Is that uh, true? That's yeah, fantastic. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and Bonner was totally unsuited to the abolition of the back pass. Because <laughs> he, he, he could not uh, deal with the ball at his feet. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Doesn't doesn't Daniel Tomofter always say to you, now I made you a superstar or something? Or something yeah. along those lines. He says to Bonner, yeah, Tomofter's who missed the penalty, obviously. He did since... And there's an interesting story around that. I actually felt bad when I when I found this. One of the Irish papers tracked him down uh, a few years ago uh, and did an interview with him. And that penalty really had a bad effect on his life. So, we, which is why I felt bad because just a few months after the 1990 World Cup, he came to Dublin with Dynamo Bucharest to to play against St Patrick's Athletic in the European Cup. And when, and I was there when when the his name was read out. I was amongst the whole crowd who cheered his name <laughs> and then cheered his every touch of the ball. And we were all laying him and everything every time he touched the ball. And um, but, but 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 his life spiraled downwards after penalty missing. He was saying that even years later, he was getting phone calls in the middle of the night from fans abusing him. God, terrible, isn't it? Yeah, and he actually uh, now apparently, at least he did a few years ago, owns a bar in Romania called penalty which he said is uh it was his way of coming to terms and finally confronting the abuse he was getting and and saying fuck you to his abuser imagine having to get up in the morning and clean that bar up got penalty in massive writing you mop it up sick and broken glass it's like this is like the perfect picture of my mind right now but also if anyone's ever going to turn on you surely it's when they've been drinking in your bar for 12 hours. <laughs> and they get reminded. And they, suddenly, and they suddenly clock who you are. <laughs> Tom Ofter, you bastard. Yeah, the, uh, so, um, sincerely, how did you feel when, when O'Leary... Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was just, just going to say there were several things. He, he, he mentioned how coming up for that penalty, first of all, he, he was overwhelmed by, uh, by two things. That I couldn't get out of his mind was, was the stage of the penalty spot. Pino <laughs> had gone before it. And oh my God, he did, yeah. He, took he butchered it. Penalty spot. He hit the ground first and the ball just trickled underneath the goalkeeper. One of the great flukes in penalty shootout history. And um, But they put the, 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 the divot back on the spot. But Moffney was just looking at it saying, that, that's not steady at all. And then um, the goal they were shooting into was with all the Ireland fans, so even when he closed his eyes, all he could see was green. It wasn't a regular penalty thing. He explained that um, he used to always um, 
to smash his penalties straight down the middle. And he did take one of his teammates, uh, came up to him on the way and said, whatever you do, don't smack it down the middle. Just go uh, eat one of one of the sides. He said, because that, the, the keeper, I think he's injured, he can't dive. <laughs> and of course, that was just Bonner's way. He was just a really wooden keeper. He didn't look agile. And he, had, and he had very um, hard hands as well. But he, he was very wooden, he, he, and he had gone the right way for all Romania's penalties, but got nowhere near them. So, so Kamofti um, altered his usual style and um, just took a two-yard two run-up and tapped this penalty slightly to the side, and Bonner just fell on it and made his save. Mm-hmm. All thanks to, to, to his wooden appearance, which is the Romanian teammate that he, that he was uh, injured. You asked a question there, Rob. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, um, well, there's something beautiful also about that, that kind of wonderful moment coming from two things. One, the Cascarino fucked his penalty up so much that he almost ruined the penalty spot. And two, the, the fact they thought Bottle looked like he was injured. It's just love. <laughs> no, I was going to say, the, the, the bit in Cascarino's book about his penalty, I'd forgotten how funny it is. It's like his internal monologue as he's walking up. Going, you're going to fucking miss this, aren't you? <laughs> it's really funny. It's brilliant. No, I was just going to ask you how sincerely, how did you feel when you saw O'Leary come up for the fifth penalty? Because I remember, even as a, like my, my parents are Irish, but I was more of an England fan. Even I did a kind of double take then. Was the, yeah. Do you think he was a bit of a glory boy, O'Leary? Well, that, yeah, well, that's that's been said, but um, but there was a shortage of volunteers, I think. So he stepped up and basically he, he said, you know, this could be my my greatest vindication because obviously he had been left out for years by, by Charlton for uh, not going on that Iceland trip I mentioned earlier preferring to go on a family holiday um, and, and also because his style wasn't what he was he was a bit too smooth a defender for Charlton but um, so he seized his moment for vindication and I guess if he'd missed he could have at least said well none of the strikers wanted none of the attackers wanted to take it so I stepped forward at least uh, I um, but he but he scored and um, yeah that was his his vindication. John John Aldridge wasn't on the field. Well, isn't there a good story about him going off just for half time? You told me once. Oh yes. Uh, well, I can't remember it. What was Basically, it wasn't he? Um, I think he'd been booked and um, and he was and then he got injured. I think just for half time. And some reason it got into his head that he had almost had a freebie because he was going off anyway. So apparently, you told me he was trying yeah. to kick Hadji up in the air, yeah. <laughs> oblivious to the fact he was on a yellow card, <laughs> <laughs> as, as if he couldn't be sent off because the substitution had been pre-planned. <laughs> um, but thankfully, he didn't get hold of yeah. Hadji, and yeah, he was able to be subbed. That's right. I think he's, he put that in his book. I think it was. It's interesting because my mother-in-law is Irish, and she lived. She's lived in London since the seventies, and she um, she says it was really strange being Irish post the nineteen ninety World Cup in London compared to what it was like being Irish in London between sort of nineteen seventy five and nineteen ninety. She said, she said yeah. it really was the strangest thing. It didn't change completely, but it changed a lot. It all of a sudden, everyone wanted to either second team to be Irish or wanted to be Irish or it suddenly became oh, really? a popular thing to be. So yeah, she said, but not everybody, but she said it was really strange to experience it. What it had been like, almost almost like a light switch had been switched. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's good. Uh, I, I believe, I'm not sure it was like that when during the Euro 92 qualifiers when, <laughs> when Ireland played England. Cause I believe, 
Well, football so fans are never a good barometer of society, are they? I wouldn't have said. But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But yeah, no, it's just it is that thing about suddenly Ireland became cool in 1990 in some way or another, which is quite a strange experience, but for, for an emigrant population. I don't want to get into the sociology of it. It's just it was an interesting observation. Yeah. Euro 92, you just mentioned in terms of qualification. I mean, Euro 92, was a, we've, we've covered Euro 92 in episode three when we talked about Denmark, don't we, Rob? And I think the big point to make is it was a... F- Really hard tournament to qualify. It was for it was basically quarterfinals from the off, wasn't Ireland, it? It's, Ireland played really didn't qualify. Spain didn't qualify. Yeah, Ireland played some really good stuff in qualification. They they probably outplayed in both games. Is that fair? Certainly at Wembley. Uh, you know, certainly at Wembley. Games. I, uh, the the first game, I wouldn't say they outplayed them, but was that was, it, was the first really game was weird? interesting because that's when Graham Taylor left Gascoigne out. Yeah, yeah, he bowed to to. You know, he was afraid of Ireland, essentially. He left Gascoigne out and he played a back five, I think. Quiz question, who did he pick instead of Gascoigne? Was it Gordon Cairns? Yeah, it was, yeah. Gordon Cairns. How old was he then, 50? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, and they they played some good, because it was quite a tough group, Poland also. How did, did, what cost Ireland? Was it, did they draw three all in Poland? Well, several things. Um, but the, <laughs> the best, one of their best performances, away performances, certainly, where they did mix it up a bit, it wasn't just direct football, they did play a bit of nice stuff, was away to Poland. Uh, Andy Townsend scored two, we were 3-1 up, and then conceded two late goals. Packy Bonner at fault, both. One of them was his, <laughs> was, was his, was his famous hard hands, um, where he just he palmed a, a, a weak shot out to a striker who scored, and then the the equaliser, he came looking for a cross and got nowhere near it, and it was just headed into the net. Um, and so, the, so that was a very costly three-all draw. Um, and then against England, where I, I think we totally outplayed England after falling behind to, to a, a, a Lee Dixon shot that deflected in off um, uh, Staunton. Um, and got a great equaliser through Niall Quinn, really nice finish from a cross from the right by Paul McGrath. Uh, but missed some great chances, including Ray Houghton has scored the two you know, most famous goals in Irish history uh, against England in 88 and, and Italy in 94. But, but he had a terrible miss that day for England. And I, I can never quite forgive him for it. Because, because winning at Wembley would, would have been, would have got us to Euro 92 uh, and, and just would have been a beautiful thing. Um, Charlton, I think, has said that the, the, the greatest chance as far as he's concerned, that we had to win a tournament. It was actually 92, which we didn't qualify for. I suppose when you look back at it, it's not an outlandish thing to say either, is it? Yeah. So we move on to the World Cup in 94. You've already mentioned Ray Houghton scoring that uh, famous goal in the... It was the opening game, wasn't it, against Italy? Yes, it was, yeah. And it was his first, he hadn't scored for about five years. And he scored with his wrong that. foot, didn't he? Was it yes, like, he, yeah, he, yeah. Didn't mean, he didn't mean that, did he? I think he meant to shoot. Yeah, he didn't mean to gently lob it over over the no, keeper. That's what Paluka was doing so far out. Um, but um, Paul, Paul McGrath. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think his last goal for Ireland before that um, was in 1989. Ireland had a World Cup qualifier two days after, on the Sunday afternoon after that famous Arsenal game on, on the Friday night. Less than 48 hours later, they played Malta. And, um, and five players who had played in that Liverpool Arsenal game were playing for Ireland that day. Wow. Scored. Um, but it's, I, I always remember that goal. One, 
because Ray Houghton always looked like a thin darts player to me. And that's the first thing. <laughs> the second thing is that I always remember after he scored, he did, he did that forward roll celebration and oh, ran off. Yeah. And I remember yeah. Terry Feeling come flying yeah. in and yeah. looked like a bouncer. He kind of put his yeah, arms around him really to weird. kind of get his yeah. elbows out and protect him from this onslaught that was coming. He didn't yeah. he wasn't even <laughs> smiling feeling. He looked like no. kind of angry that people were getting <laughs> too close to him. It was really strange. <laughs> I think Terry Phelan was was um, he was the Kyle Walker of his day. Well, I think Man City made him the the world's most expensive centre back. Oh, Man City have a great record of spunking <laughs> stupid money on people, haven't they? But yeah. it's um, yeah. So it's I've, worth mentioning. Just it's worth a quick mention of McGrath's performance against Italy. Yeah, he was absolutely just superb. Absolutely immense. Yeah, Roy Keane was very good that day as well. But um, yeah, that was McGrath. It was, everyone would agree that was his best performance in in an Ireland shirt. I once asked him once, actually, if that was um, his best performance of his career. Uh, and he said, yeah, just because of the context, um, it was. But but other than that, he said he always played well against Arsenal. He said for some reason, he just always played brilliantly against Arsenal. Even if they lost, he came off the pitch thinking I was great that day. Do you think historically we kind of recognise just what a genius he was? I'm not, th- not so much Irish people, I'm thinking more in England. Yeah, quite possibly. I think, um, yeah. I, I remember I, just recently I, I read um, a, a report, not a report, a, a retro piece on a friendly between Ireland and Italy from 1985. And, and the reason they did a piece on it was because <laughs> the FAI, Italy were the world champions, of course, and the FAI, um, possibly because attendances weren't that high at, at, at that time, decided um not not to sell tickets in advance so it was just pay at the gate um and of course they were vastly oversubscribed and so there was there was people um standing on the touchline on the pitch um fans and um being brady had to go into the italian dressing room beforehand and reassure them um, <laughs> the, the irish aren't like english fans you'll be fine <laughs> and so and so when they were taking their throw-ins and everything they had to say excuse me excuse me out of the way um <laughs> but 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 for that piece, it was the journalist Aidan Fitzmaurice did it, and uh, he talked to people like such as Paolo Rossi and all that. And the one thing all the Italian players said was, "Oh yeah, that was Paul McGrath. That was the first time I saw Paul McGrath." Wow. So even then, they recognised that he was brilliant. But I remember, um, I think I've said this before, but um, Andy Gray spoke about McGrath when he was at when when Gray was at, was helping coach Villa, and McGrath was there. And he said he had to stop playing offside. Because Paul McGraw would not play offside, he had, to def- <laughs> he had to defend everything. So they had to make a choice between stopping playing the offside trap or dropping McGraw and playing McGraw one out. And also, yeah. he said that the number of times you'd watch him play and you know seasoned campaigners would go, "Why is he moved there?" Yeah. And then the ball would suddenly hit him in the chest or <laughs> would somehow come across and he'd jump and edit away. He said, it, it, "Genius is not too strong a word." He was just it's, remarkable. Have you, have, you, have you read his book, McGrath's yeah, book? Yeah, it's terrific. I'm keeping to reread actually. Oh, there's, a lovely, there's a lovely bit where he talks about the kind of unspoken battle with, his, with your third forward and the whole kind of rhythm of it. Sometimes he's on top, and you know, both know it, and you kind of acknowledge it. And other times, you feel like you've got him. It's it's much better than I've just made it sound, but it's really, <laughs> really that sounded all right really as well. So yeah, it was really eloquent and really interesting. And, and yeah, it's kind it's of, really interesting. It's a it's a brilliant book, and and. Uh, there's, I mean, it's quite strange in parts as well, uh, but the bit where he's describing how, I think it's how he developed his famous knee problems was because he had a, a sort of a breakdown in his late teens and spent almost a year 
in, in hospital, basically, uh, just clinging to his bed and with his knees locked together. Uh, just, My God. Yeah, but it's a very it's a very harrowing book and and and, and interesting. How is he these days? I don't know. <laughs> I think he's doing well. I think the book, um, from what I believe, the book uh, was part of his recovery and overcoming uh, the, the the various demons he had. I interviewed him at the time that that is when he was publicising his book, and he said mm-hmm. that the process had been really good for him, and, and he, he he was learning and he was more confident in himself because he had terrible problems with yeah self confidence possibly um well from from the circumstances of his childhood possibly racism was a factor during his youth um there's a it's well worth a read to anyone who hasn't read it so meanwhile back at the florida citrus bowl island of play in mexico yes and it's the famous uh touchline meltdown before we get into this one of the best things about this for me is Charlton and Morris Setters looking like the two most typical Irish stroke <laughs> British people abroad. With yeah, like, they should have had handkerchiefs on their head. Well, they had gigantic white um, baseball caps, didn't they? But they were yeah. like really crap baseball caps, so they were too yeah. big. And they, yeah. they basically, my granddad wore one on holiday. That was, the, and I just thought this is brilliant. And they're like, <laughs> and Charlton obviously would still wanted to be in some kind of shirt order, didn't he? He didn't want to be too scruffy and stuff. Yeah, and then, and then well, Steve Steve Staunton wore one of those hats, of course, onto the pitch and during the national anthems. He was wearing, <laughs> and apparently Tommy Coyne was given one as well, but he said it's the only time he's ever disobeyed Jack because he absolutely refused to wear one of those caps and, during the national anthem. And those games as well, the biggest memory year I say ninety four was all the loads of polythene bags that'd be all over the pitch by the end of it because uh, they got yeah. over the humidity by throwing on bags, sort of like well, basically like freezer bags full of water, didn't they, that are tied yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these days it's all you know sorted now, but because that that game started at like midday or something, didn't it was it? absolutely roasting hot, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah, the, the Irish were in danger of melting, and and interesting because they couldn't play their normal high tempo game. They actually played some decent stuff towards the end, and and the goal that Aldridge scored after he came on was probably the best goal scorer during the Charlton era, uh, just in pure footballing terms. It was just nice, careful build-up from the back and a, a, a good perceptive pass by John Sheridan and a cross from, I can't remember who, to and a nice... McAteer, wasn't it? McAteer it was, yes. What were the expectations going into the tournament? Because hadn't they won in both Germany and Holland? Yeah, and friendlies, yeah. And if, actually, if... Um, Which is a big thing, you know, going into a World Cup. To, I know oh, friendlies are all right, but that's a huge thing. Yeah, it was. And... Um, they uh, had the, the big regret of that campaign was how negative Ireland were against Norway when they drew the yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was Egil Olsen against Jack Charlton. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> it was a meeting of of great minds, and um, but it was a terribly dull game. And Ireland were very negative and on adventures. Neither side wanted to take risks. If they had beaten Norway, because they were the better team, and Norway were clearly more fearful. Um, they, they would have finished uh, ahead of Mexico in the group, and then they would have got to play, um, I think, their path to the final would have gone Bulgaria, uh, Germany, who they beat in Germany just a month before, albeit in a friendly, and neither side was totally at full strength. And Italy again, who obviously they'd already beat Italy, and then they've been in the final. But um, that's all very likely. And of course, they, they, the team they ended up meeting were Holland, who they'd also beat. 
and uh, and they lost. Paki Barra made a mistake. <laughs> as I said, that the uh, the that uh, mistake, as you put it, from Vin Young's shot was um, is it as does have possibly my favourite commentary of all time for Barry <laughs> David, where he's just talking quite normally as if he's as if Bonner's going to catch the ball, and then he, he, he can't, and he, and he he's so is in such disbelief, Barry David. He just goes, "Oh, Pat Bonner." As the, ball, as the ball rolls in, and it is just like because that's what's great about Davis. He was a very they don't think he was, but he was a really emotional guy. And obviously, a lot of people are just oh, isn't that a disaster? And he was just like so disappointed yeah. that, that an international goalkeeper would do such a thing. Oh, Pat Bonner! I just remembered another story from that World Cup. Didn't Ireland have the wrong kit on against Italy before the game? Oh yes, I remember. Well, and they were basically they were both. They were, I think. I think Italy ended up wearing the away kit. Is that right? But either way, Ireland was supposed to wear one kit and had the wrong kit on. And they were both they were lining up, and one of the Irish said, "Look, look at these pricks! They've got the wrong, yeah. the wrong shirt." And then one of the Irish team said, "Hang on, that's Italy. They they know a thing or two about fashion." And then they had a mad panic before the game to change their shirts and everything, like yeah. two minutes before their first World Cup game. But didn't I think Staunton said in a weird way actually relax them? Because they were so flustered about trying to get their kit on. Yeah. The, right the, other, on. the other thing was that relaxed them was when they came out and they saw that eighty percent of the fans were were Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although I think Andy Townsend in his book talks about how when they're they're lining, they were looking around and they're thinking, "This is brilliant! All our fans are here," and uh, they're lining up for the national anthems. And I think the roof was closed, so it was a very oppressive, uh, still air. And he goes, "It was. I was so grateful." That uh, we had so many fans until they got the national anthem began. They all opened their mouths to sing, and the stench of beer was. <laughs> so Townsend's book, which I haven't read, but he did a World Cup diary. It's fantastic, isn't it? Apparently. Yeah, I read it so long ago. I can't. I can't remember much about it. To be honest, it just feels like like one legacy. Well, not legacy, but this team produced a hell of a lot of good books. I think McGrath, Cascarita as well. There was just a kind of honesty that and Keane, obviously, and yeah. a kind of just a. a and honesty that you don't necessarily get with players from other countries. Mentioning that argument, and so maybe and still one of my favourite things is how angry John Aldridge, how long John Aldridge stays <laughs> angry for. It's about 15 yeah. minutes, isn't it, after he's gone on. But it reminds me, we mentioned Morris Setters, remind me to ask the question, what was, you know, what was the influence of Morris Setters Oh. Charlton. I mean, you know, what was what what was that all about? You know, what was his role? What was what did he I think bring? we should get Roy Keane. We should get Roy Keane on to ask him about that. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely loathes setters. I don't. I can't remember. To I'm be honest. sure he skewers him in one of his books, but he skewers everyone, obviously. Anyway. So, what was his role then? There was he just kind of Jack's mate, or did he? Did he... he was Jack's mate. He was the he was the one who went. Uh, one of the things. He was one of his prime responsibilities was was stalking English clubs looking for uh, people of <laughs> Irish heritage, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't say that that he was, uh, uh, you know, he was a, a bestower of great tactical acumen because Jack, <laughs> Jack, Jack's plan was a very simple, straightforward plan, um, yeah. and Jack was the motivator and and some. I don't know. Morris just, was Morris just hung around with him. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there is there an argument that with players like Brady at different points, Whelan, Keane, Sheridan, and so on, that they could have played a bit more football, or is that or are you kind of in danger of killing the golden goose if you do that? No, no. I think I mean, and that was 
as I said, when I mentioned Dunphy earlier on, um, yeah, everyone was making that argument at the time, um, including some of the players. And 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 there's no doubt, we can never know for sure, but there's no doubt he, Charlton played to the opponent's weaknesses rather than to Ireland's strengths. Yeah. And so there was, there's always that question of, well, what if we had tried to play a bit more football? We had good players. They played well for their cl- clubs. They they just mix it up, like I said earlier, a bit like Belgium did at the time. I mean, they had Enzo Schifo in the middle. We had Brady at, at the start. We never really had someone of the class of Brady until, uh, in a creative sense, after that. But we had good players, Whelan, John Sheridan, I always thought, did well when he was allowed pass. Um, Roy Keane, of course, came later, but not the same sort of player. But, but yeah... And um, and and even just playing out from the back, and we had good defenders, good fullbacks who could have done more than just pump mm. it into the channels. And John Aldridge, of course, one of the best, one of the yeah. best strikers in Europe, who who was very who was very seldom in the box. Uh, he, I mean, when England fans ranted about Harry Kane taking corners at the last Euros. John Aldridge was, was, as I said, he was never in the box. His job was to was was to anticipate um, the the punt forward from the fullbacks into the channels, chase it down, and either win a corner or feed it back for for a cross. And I mean, he didn't he didn't score for his first. Uh, it was a, it was his twentieth game for Ireland that he scored, uh, and his record ended up. I think he ended up with nineteen goals in about seventy matches. Um, whereas well, every club he was at. Uh, it, it was a goal every two games or better. Ireland then missed out in, in Jack's final qualifying campaign, missed out on Euro 96. That must be a big regret. That would have been a, well, I hate to use it. It's quite patronising people talk about what a party to be because the Irish were there. But given <laughs> what it was like anyway, I do think there's some legs in saying that about 96. It would have been, it would have added to the occasion, certainly. Yeah. Um, that, that was obviously his last campaign, and it was we started really well with a lot of wins, um, but then fell off badly, and uh, were beaten home and away by by Austria, uh, who were a very weird team. They they, they beat us three one at home and away, uh, and lost to Latvia, and we made it to the playoffs because Austria then lost five three to to Northern Ireland. Uh, qualified from your group. That was uh, just pause there for a second. Holland. <laughs> no, we played Holland in the playoff. All right. Yeah, um, I'm... it was Spain, I think. Uh, was that or was that? Uh... That was ninety three, certainly ninety three, ninety four. I don't know, but I genuinely can't remember. Yeah, I can't. I have, this is why my fucking fact sheet that I did. Northern uh... Ireland. I'll have a look. Hang on, I'll have a look. No, no I have it here. I have it. Portugal. Was it Portugal, yeah? Yeah, Portugal were in that oh, yes. <laughs> ah. Yeah, because that's when we, you know, because we, 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 Portugal trounced us 3 0 away, I think, when uh, Rui Costa scored one of the most magnificent chips you'll ever see a lob from, side footed lob from about 25 yards over Alan Kelly was in goal at that time. Uh, <laughs> he was only about two yards off the line, but it was an absolutely wonderful goal. But we beat them 1 0 in Dublin. Uh, with a goal that was almost a replica of of first notable big scalp we'd taken at home uh, earlier in Charlton's reign, which we beat Spain one 0 at home with um, this real scuff, long punt downfield. Uh, Cascarino, I think uh, I can't remember who it was, but anyway, it ended up being a Michel own goal when he was just 
so har- harassed by by Irish players that he funneled the ball into his own net. And then for that match against Portugal, it was almost the same, except it was Victor Victor Baia, the, the keeper, who turned it into his own net. And I, I, I always remember after that, Aldridge, just, uh, who was the closest Irish player to him, just turned around. And remember Fernando Couto? With the hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and Aldridge just uh, laughs in his face, right into his face. <laughs> 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 he's probably the worst person to get to concede an own goal to because remember he, he ruffled Brian Law's hair yeah I was going to say he had form for that yeah when he apparently on, on, on the side you, you know when he did that to Brian Law's when when Arsenal then won the league with Michael Thomas' famous goal Tony Adams went up to Aldridge shake his hand and just whisper that's for Brian Law's you <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I won't I won't say the last word what happened yeah. then in '96? Was was it the end of the Charlton magic? Was it tiring players? Could it have gone? Better? Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of aging players. Um, uh, uh, and one thing Charlton had never done was never been great at promoting youth or bringing through a, a, a younger generation of players. So when his old stalwarts started to fade, though, I mean, there wasn't, maybe there wasn't great players coming through anyway. Um, but there was a there was a slight sense of ennui, and the way we collapsed towards the end of that campaign and really struggled into the playoffs, uh, and I think there was possibly also a, a sense of okay, we've been doing this for ten years. Let let's see if we can play a bit more football. And then uh, in the in the Holland were clearly better than us in in, in that match. Hmm. Grant Keane was injured, and I think Staunton was out as well. So uh, missing some good players, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was very much the end of an era and he ended up Charlton didn't consider it the end of the year he wanted to go on as at least he was a few months short of marking 10 years in charge and he wanted to have that anniversary and stay in charge just for the next friendly mm. but in a, in a rather appropriate uh, uh, lack of sentimentality <laughs> the FA just, just forced him into resigning before he reached that milestone which um, given how he treated various players in the past he couldn't really complain about and he's never done a managerial job since, has he? No, well, he doesn't need the money. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I think you forget how old he was. Because he was in his 30s when he won the World Cup. Mm. You know, so you do forget, actually, that he was a fairly... He was knocking on a fair bit. Yeah, he was. Um, and all that travel maybe gets you down. I never realised <laughs> him, and, him and Bobby aren't that close. But just to you know, talk about the personal stuff to move away for a bit. He's he's not very close with Bobby at all. No, they're it not. Seems, they, I, it seems sad. It seems like it shouldn't be that way, but it is obviously. It is, yeah. It has been for a long time. So there you go. That was a little, well, little, quite a long gallop actually through uh, Ireland's Jack Charlton years. Let's talk about before we finish off the Ballon d'Or in nineteen eighty nine. We we sometimes like to pick something from the past like this and have a look at it and see if there's anything interesting about it. Um, I think the first thing to pick up is let's pick up the kind of top players that are within it. The first thing was uh, the winner is Marco Van Basten, which is probably not that hard to argue with, is it, Rob? No, I always think Ballon d'Or is more interesting in a non-World Cup year because the World Cup kind of takes care of it. Um, so, 89, obviously, Milan won the first European Cup. Van Basten was absolutely in his... Well, actually, one of almost two imperial phases, if that's not a contradiction. <laughs> one before Italian night and then another one kind of rounds... Man's unbeaten season, but yeah, just an absolutely perfect centre forward, really. Um, but interesting to notice the 
a reasonably close second. Rambasson got one on nine points, second with 80 points, Franco Baresi. Um And it's quite unusual, I guess, to see a defender that high up. I know, I think Calamari won it one year, but yeah, it's fairly unusual. Um, but Milan were the best team in Europe at yeah. the time. Yeah, because Rijkaard's in third, isn't he? It's kind of yeah, and Hull at seventh. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, I, I thought it was interesting. Brady was that. The other thing about that is, and I don't know how much kind of it would have, how significant it would have been, but there were a load of friendlies leading up to Italian ninety, and Italy just didn't concede a goal. Like, all their friendlies were nil nil or one nil wins. It felt like, so I guess that didn't do Brady's reputation any harm either. But there's also some interesting selections in here as well, so it's quite curious. Uh, wooden, yeah, let's... wooden injury, wooden accident-prone goalkeeper Packy Bonner turns up at 17th in the in the reckoning. Paul, in the Battle of the Yeah, yes. in 89 as well. So what did he do in 89? <laughs> well, Ireland didn't concede many goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so he probably kept a lot of clean sheets. Uh, I'm just, I'm just putting great save by Bonner into Google here. And uh, no, anyway, no, no results. No fans. results. Let me just try a stunning save by Bonner. Uh, <laughs> Google quite... says not on your Nelly. Google says don't insult. There were quite a few keepers in the list. Michel Prudom was joint 10th. Yeah, Shilton was 5th. Shilton was 5th, which I was going to say is interesting, if only to see the named Derby County in the top five of the Ballon d'Or. Absolutely, yeah. But actually, again, England, I think, qualified for the World Cup without conceding a single goal. And so this is this was announced in December 89, I think. And in October 89, it had that storming game in Poland when it was basically a shooting range for 90 minutes and he just kept stopping these vicious 40-yarders. So I guess that can't have done him any harm. Um, but there, I mean, there were the usual names. So Rijkaard third, Lothar Mateus fourth, Dragon Stojkovic six is quite interesting because Yugoslavia and Red Star were emerging. Then Hullet Hadji, Klinsman, Papan Prudom. The yeah, other one, always, is there yeah, is. exactly. <laughs> this is always interesting. So joint twenty third with one vote. This is the last group: Thomas Hessler, Ronald Koeman, Gary Lineker, Paolo Maldini, Gianluca Vialli, Alexander Zavarov. They're all fair enough. Zavarov's a great player. Then you've got Theo Snelders at Aberdeen and Robbie Langers, the Luxembourg. Football. I don't even know where he played. <laughs> so I really want to know who voted for him. He got one vote. He played for Nice, and obviously it was done by France football. So maybe there's something in that. But well, he scored. He scored a lot of goals that season for Nice in the French league. You, you, do you genuinely know that? No, I've just googled it. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Hussein's in there as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's a funny one because Liverpool. Everyone thought Liverpool had got an absolute bargain when they got him because they stitched United up or didn't stitch them up but they kind of beat United to the punch um, and United got Gary Pallister instead but yeah it was also interesting to see Andreas Muller who I knew very little about in 89 um, Paolo Futre kind of a slightly forgotten genius was in the list um, Mikhailichenko was 12th Dynamo Kiev and Soviet Union I think he was in the middle of a run of winning seven consecutive league titles Um yeah, Paolo Fuchs, of course, you end up becoming a genius at West Ham for nine games. Yeah, yeah one game in particular. Yeah, I, I suppose there aren't any shocking omissions, are there? Um, trying to think. They, so you weren't allowed South American players at the time, hence no Maradona, no Careca, and so on. Mm. Um, who was the third? Yeah, the, the three Germans from Inter are there, Matthias Bremer, Klinsmann, three Dutchmen are there for Milan. So yeah, it's mainly it's the kind of second half. It's quite interesting. People like Mikhailichenko, Julio Salinas. 
I always thought he was a bit of a donkey, but he's yeah. level with John Barnes and Pat Bonner. And then, of course, Robbie Langers and Teo Snelders. And Glenn Hussain, etc. Yeah. yeah, curious lists. It probably worth looking at a Ballon d'Or list in between World Cups again at some point. That's brought us to the end. Thank you very much for your time, everybody out there. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you very much, Paul. And we'll Pleasure. see you all soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.